I'm sure you can tell by the way that I talk that I am Petrus Patsilovus, and this is Coppola Connections, where week by week we're shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to answer the ultimate question, are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week we looked at Talia Shire, this week we're looking at her then-husband David Shire and his contribution to the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. I'm joined on this episode by Catherine Lowe, who in the time from recording this to this being released has announced that she has a podcast coming out very soon called Do You Want Me? which she is doing with the amazing Rich Nelson of the Betamax Video Club where they are looking at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film history. I'm sure just by listening to that you're just like me and you can't wait to hear it. So definitely keep an eye out for when that podcast drops. As always, if you want some bonus chat, head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where you can get all things Nicolas Cage and me and Catherine had an amazing chat about Nick Cage. I've recently as well updated some of the tiers on Patreon and now offering a tea towel and an art print for every $5 donors. Come on, what other podcasts are offering that? As is always the case, now is your spoiler warning. We will going through every single dance in this film. The cha-cha, the boogie-woogie, the wiggle-wiggle. All of the dance moves will be discussed. So if you haven't seen this film, duck out now. You can always have a look in the show notes. We can find a handy document that will tell you if and where this film is streaming. So whether you're a brother or a mother, there's only one thing left to do. And that's to make some Coppola connections. On this episode, we go back to 1977, a year after last week's film, Rocky. So let's clock off work, get on our dancing shoes, get a little bit of speed, round up your mates. It's Saturday night and we're going to head to the 2001 disco as we discuss Saturday Night Fever. Sprinkled in between the BGs and disco classics is David Shire's music, which makes our Coppola connection for this week. When it comes to dancing, it's always best to have a partner. So to join me and talk about how this film has aged, where has John Travolta's hair gone, and all things disco, is Katrin Lowe. How are you, Katrin? I'm very well, thank you, Patras. How are you? I'm yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about Saturday Night Fever. I'm kind of like it's I've got a weird and wonderful history with it that it wasn't until this year that I saw the uh, I saw the actual cut because this film in like I think it was 1979 got a kind of like TV cut and that's that's all I knew about it. Like what's what's your relationship with this film? Well, my mother rented the cut version for me when I think I would have been about 11, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I had absolutely no knowledge of the film. I'd heard the title before, but I was, you know, born just a bit too late to kind of be aware of all this insane hype that surrounded it and everything. And I can remember putting on video and immediately becoming totally obsessed with that opening I thought that the music was fantastic I thought John Travolta looked amazing with his can of paint 
I even like got my tape recorder and I put it really close to the TV <laughs> so I could try and record the song Staying Alive. And then I tried to record Night Fever as well in the bit where he's getting ready. And then I think a couple, a few years would have gone by. And then I think it would have been in the mid 90s. I think on BBC Two, they did, uh, they put on a showing of the uncut version. And I can remember it had a kind of rapturous introduction by, I think, Mark Cousins. And I can remember him sort of quoting Madonna's Into the Groove and things like that in the in the introduction to try and sort of get across that sort of feeling of the escape that you feel when you go to the disco. And and then that was when I saw the uncut version. And it was just such a different, different thing altogether from the cut version. I just couldn't, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute, how what a different kind of feeling it gives you. But it, at that time, it would have been the mid-90s and it sort of fitted in quite well with what was coming out in popular culture then. Like mm. you had films like Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, and actually Saturday Night Fever, when you look at it in the context of that, it feels sort of quite influential. Like I was even thinking the other day about how the opening of Train Spotting of him running down the road in Edinburgh to Lust for Life almost feels like a little bit of a nod to that opening mm. of Saturday Night Fever. It's kind of like the opening of Saturday Night Fever gone horribly wrong. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, it's it's kind of yeah. it's that opening uh, on harder drugs, right? It is yes, that kind exactly. Of like... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, completely. So, um, so yeah, but I do think I do think it's quite a masterpiece. Uh, amazing. Well, I you saying about the influence on kind of nineties cinema in pre- in weird preparation? I'd kind of always wanted to watch it, but I put on a Summer of Sam last last night to watch that and. A film that's set in 1977, and there's these kind of weird parallels between them. Because obviously, like, it is about, like, kids going to the disco, but a very different backdrop to it. Because obviously it's all about the kind of uh, Son of Sam killer and stuff like that. But you kind of see, yeah, you kind of see the the shadow of Saturday Night Fever upon that film even down to like there's weird things when I started thinking about it it's like there's lots of shots of like John Leguizamo like in his pants just in his apartment and it's like is this a direct reference to the kind of somewhat notorious moment uh, of John Travolta and that kind of shot you get from underneath that I know at at the time in 1977 kind of caused a lot of uproar from people going like I can't believe you've you've put in like what's essentially a knob shot in the <laughs> film. Yeah, I think um I I read John Baden saying that that yeah that, that he got quite a, a hard time from critics about that shot, mm-hmm. and I and he was saying that it was actually just that kind of you for once you see a man yeah. that's being objectified, you know, rather than rather than a woman, yeah, and. It's it's his body that's being sort of admired by the camera, <laughs> and you and people were just so used to it being the opposite sex, you know, and that felt really shocking. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to be talking about a lot of the music in this, and obviously, we can't we can't talk about Saturday Night Fever without mentioning the Bee Gees. But some of the songs on this, and which like, obviously links this to the Coppola family, is David Shire. But with the wider couple of family, when did you become aware of them as this kind of film family entity, crime family that they are? 
Well, I was quite a big fan of Marlon Brando growing up. I used to watch Guys and Dolls a lot and I saw Streetcar Named Desire a few times as well. And I think just by finding out a little bit about him, I was aware of the Godfather and how much that had been kind of significant in solidifying his kind of legendary status as an actor. But I'd probably say that apart from this film that we're talking about tonight, the film connected to the Coppola family that had the biggest impression on me was Lost in Translation, which I went to see a few times at the cinema when I was a student. And yeah, and it felt really refreshing as as a film at the time. There was something about, it was very kind of European influenced and had a lot of space in it, in a way that was such a contrast to all the films that kind of were around, you know, things like sort of the American Pie franchise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a lot of very kind of loud, colourful films that were that were kind of doing doing the rounds at the at the beginning of the noughties. And there was something about Lost in Translation that felt very different that I really liked. So yeah, uh, amazing. So do you, yeah, what would have been the first kind of Coppola family film that you you would have you would have seen? Um. Well, I suppose does David if David Shire qualifies? Yeah, who can go with David Shire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's I suppose it's probably this one. Probably... <laughs> Amazing. I know, I know. Like I, I, I didn't um, I didn't see the God the Godfather films until after that, and I didn't, and I didn't see Rocky either until after I'd seen that. And now, yeah, this would have been this probably would have been my earliest. Well, yeah, it's very, it's very. It's very weird when, like, obviously you talk about, like, this and Rocky and the fact that, like, they're a year apart. And I I don't, in a way, I don't think you have this without Rocky because I think, like, that film really gave Hollywood the chance to kind of give people a chance to show these, like, more grittier stories. Obviously, this kind of takes it to a far more darker place than rocky goes to but like and obviously this is like this film kind of wouldn't be what it is without the steady cam and it's like rocky was like one of the first films to ever use that and um yeah it's it's just a it's just it's just a, it's just a fascinating one and obviously uh the yeah the biggest link between those two films obviously david and talia shire at the time were married so shall we yeah. talk Shall we talk about Saturday Night Fever? This is the landmark film that made Oscar nominee John Travolta a superstar on the dance floor. Hey, Tony, you know something? You're the king out there. You're great. Great dancers. You could do as good as me if you practice. Okay, listen. I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing personal. With help from a beautiful dance partner, he's on a quest to be the best and escape the violent streets of New York. Oh, face, huh? Oh, I cut myself shaving. Well, the switchblade, huh? Are you gonna do something with your dancing? I don't know. I don't. People ask me all the time, Tony. The only way you're gonna survive is to do what you think is right. Now we have Stephanie Mangano and Tony Manero. Relive the music of an entire generation with John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Could you? perhaps give us like a brief synopsis of what this film is about 
Well, I suppose this film is about nightlife and about how this uh, young man called Tony Monero is finding solace in going out on a Saturday night with his friends and getting away from his kind of uh, slightly oppressive job in a paint shop uh, where he's got a lovely boss, but he's just very aware of the fact that he might have this job for the rest of his life and he doesn't know that's what he wants to do. Uh, he is being brought up in um, a Catholic household where uh, he has a brother that is um, currently away and he's joined the priesthood and his parents are very approving of that. They're very disapproving of Tony's uh, recreational activities outside the household and I suppose the culture in which he's being raised is very traditional mm -hmm. and yeah there are certain expectations for Tony's life and he he's not sure that those expectations are the things that match up with what he wants. Yeah there's a there's a really like significant moment in the opening and John Badham talks about this on the commentary is that he wanted to show, because I was just like that shot of the Brooklyn Bridge before we kind of get to Travolta strutting down the street, is he just wanted to show how close somewhere like Brooklyn and Manhattan is. And I kind of like this film very much is about crossing that bridge right to, to, to make it to the other side. Now, even if you don't know what that is and kind of like you go on, Tony's journey and I don't know I guess because I don't have I, I hadn't seen this film when I was younger I'm kind of gonna lay my cards out on the table quite early I'm not sure how I feel about this film because I'm not sure okay. if it is the is the film that I kind of like expected it to be do you know what I mean yeah. like I kind of like you kind of get sold on this idea that it's going to be this like it's a film about the disco era and <laughs> like and then like you kind of get introduced to Tony Monero and his kind of gang of goons who who are, are fucking arseholes basically yeah. right? what what do you what are your kind of yeah what do you think of the character of Tony well i think i think that he's an interesting He's an interesting sort of, like, you have the machismo that mm -hmm. is sort of identified in a film like Rocky, but then it's all subverted because they explore that version of Tony through disco dancing and sort of self-beautification, and both of those things are usually associated either with women or, or in a sort of homosexual context mm -hmm. in terms of what we expect in film. And he is you know he's sort of showing us this incredibly kind of raw aggressive quite vulnerable um version of masculinity that's you know very rude and amazingly just sort of op open to everything that's happening to him incredibly impulsive and there is something interesting about him though because if you if you watch it a few times mm -hmm. you start to notice actually that that Tony doesn't actually have very much sex in the film yeah 
and you you think you kind of have a, uh, you've sort of pinned that on him quite early on I think where you kind of think oh yeah well he's just after xyz and then you notice when you watch it again you can think actually he he turns down quite a lot of sex and he and he he they even have that sort of moment where the girl where the really gorgeous girl is saying to him are you as good on, on the dance floor as you are in bed yeah and he kind of tells her to fuck off you know he sort of tries to dance with her and he says well if you know you're a lousy dancer it probably means that you're a lousy fuck <laughs> and yeah, and then he sort of pushes her off the dance floor and then he dances to you should be dancing and it's the most amazing sequence but it's also quite sort of narcissistic and it's sort of just the ultimate clearing the dance floor here I am I am amazing and I'm actually sort of more interested in the perfection of my own performance than I am in like getting a bit of skirt tonight so we sort of this mass of contradictions yeah and I think I think one of the things I have a problem with is like if you kind of weigh up on the scale of the things he does throughout the film it's kind of like you see you see him more being like a dick to people and kind of like through his kind of narcissism and arrogance kind of like doesn't see that the people around him are, are crying out for help especially like when you look at the character of Bobby and the way he treats like Annette throughout this film and even like the way he treats Stephanie that it's like kind of by the end of the film we'll obviously get into that a bit later but I'm not sure like I'm like the way you've treated people Tony are we supposed to are we supposed to at the end go oh all right mate like You've you've had a bit of a t- you've had a bit of a tough one. Well, I hope it all works out for you. Is it like you've kind of made your sordid bed? It's time yeah. to sh- strip down to your pants and lay in it because like, th- th- and it's it's that thing. I know that not every tale has to be one of good and bad, or there is obviously the grey in people, and it doesn't have to be some kind of redemptive story. But it kind of does, in a weird way, play it out like that, and it's. It's just, I guess there is that kind of weird juxtaposition that it kind of plays off against that thing of trying to have its double stacked slices of pizza and eat. <laughs> in in that it kind of tries to like be like this, hey, like let's all have fun dancing movie. And then it's kind of like sandwiched with this like really quite nihilistic film about like, feeling trapped and living in like a dead end i don't know it kind of like i guess it's the fact like if it was about yeah anything out of it's just the weird juxtaposition with the and i guess like for people in brooklyn at the time that would have been a very common story right like people would have been like they they their only their only release would have probably been like the discos on the weekend and kind of like getting out their demons on the dance floor. I just I, I don't know it, it and it, it's that thing that it kind of it seems that every film in the seventies and like rewatching Rocky recently, you just realise oh every film's kind of really bleak in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I I do think that these films require us to be grown-ups mm-hmm. in a way that that films maybe um do more rarely now mm-hmm. like it expects you to have a level of 
of kind of, you know, existential awareness that yeah. it can be quite difficult to summon the the energy for sometimes. Like I, I think it's a I think it's a, a, an incredible piece of work, this film, but I do not watch it very often because I find it so profoundly upsetting. Mm-hmm. It yeah. leaves me with a feeling of just you know oh my god I'm so, I feel so I feel so disturbed by this film and I think that I mean you're completely right about the how the 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 feeling of disco in it totally wrong foots you but I think that's good in the sense that nightclubs do exist in grim areas like yeah. you know we've all we've all been to to nightclubs and you go in and you might have a bit of a scary incident. I think it's quite a universal feeling for people that have kind of, you know, indulged in a bit of nightlife in their, in their time, which most of us have. And so that idea of there being a club where you hear really exhilarating, wonderful pop music, and then you go home and you're miserable. Mm-hmm. I don't think is, is something that shouldn't be represented yeah, yeah. in a think That's quite, that's quite real but also I think that your your point about how unsympathetic Tony's character is is a really good one and I think that's sort of why I do think when I'm watching this film that if you take John Travolta out of it and you put someone who's got less of a sort of nuanced I mean, he's a very he's a very difficult actor to sort of sum up, isn't he? It's like, but there's something about his incredible sort of the the vulnerability that that lies in his face is absolutely vital to this film working. Because I think if you put anyone who's a, a bit more of a kind of crude actor in that role, it just doesn't work. As a... oh, <laughs> oh yeah, if, if this was like Harvey Keitel, it would be yeah. like, oh, like, there's there's no redeeming. Like there's more that like he's beyond the pale of like redemption whereas like you kind of get like the idea and i guess it does come through in like john travolta's uh performance like he's a bit of a dummy like he's, he kind of like he, there's a line he delivers quite early on when he's at the dinner table with his family and he just says like he hits my hair and it's like that that grammatically as a as a sentence like in in the context of how he says it just doesn't really make sense and just kind of like I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of like he just seems like a bit of a doofus, and like that is, yes. and like his like kind of interactions with with Stephanie and stuff like that. And she's kind of like, it is that, and yeah, it's reference in the film. Is this kind of there is these undertones of like a a Romeo and Juliet story of like her kind of she's she's on her way to going over the bridge into Manhattan, and he's very much still rough and ready living in Brooklyn. But before we get too deep into talking about the kind of um, the the more grim stuff in this, let's talk about how glorious that opening is, right? Like when up, oh, it's great, right? You kind of that. I think that's the thing when you when you first watch this film, you get that opening. You're like, right, I'm up, I'm ready to go. Like this is this is gonna be just like pumping disco tunes. A guy just having like walking down the street. I'd, I'd never, I'd never thought about stacking two slices of pizza before. But since watching this film, I'm like, I want to do that. And it kind of, I don't know. You think you're in for a lot of fun in that opening. Um, well, yeah. What no, do you, no, you really do. <laughs> what do, what uh, do you, what I'm do you sorry. Of, no. What do you make of that opening? 
I think, well, as I say, I was just absolutely transfixed mm. by it. And I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it. it you know, that's the thing. I, I can tell you that it, it wasn't me responding to hype in any way. Yeah. Like I saw that as, you know, as a young person, completely just fresh. And I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. And it's really weird because all it is is him kind of having got, been sent to another paint shop to get a can of paint. And it's just him walking down the street. And you're like, why is this? so incredible and it's the combination of him and the music like you take take one away and it doesn't but apparently when they were filming it they were just they were having a real problem with filming all of these scenes I'm sure you will have read about this as well with kind of just there being hordes of John Travolta fans screaming on the sidelines and I had I read some kind of quote from him where they sort of said to him, how are you so confident in that first scene? Like, where do you get that strut? And he's just like, when you've got thousands of girls screaming at you from the sidelines, it's quite easy to walk in a confident way. It's, it's that, and they actually had the demos for Staying Alive. Like they had, they had a demo playing on set so they could, so he could obviously keep in rhythm and like yes. the people on, and you kind of like, you see it with the people on the street. They're kind of like almost, everyone's in with time to the music and this kind of like interactions with with people this is a, and in that kind of first couple of minutes as well you get two of john travolta's family members uh, on screen so his sister is the woman who's working in the pizza place and the woman he's kept waiting as he goes to get that tin of paint is john travolta's mum yeah that's amazing isn't it and i, and I, I hear that that you know they they sent a limo for her and stuff and like really gave her the five star treatment because they really wanted to be incredibly nice to John Travolta's mum. There's something there's something wonderful about knowing all of that when you're when you're watching that opening. Yeah. It's funny when he when he orders the two pieces of pizza. The, another another film that I really like is Point Break, mm-hmm. and there's a bit in Point Break that I really like for some reason where Gary Boosie asks. Keanu Reeves to get him two meatball subs and he just yells out the car, get me two, Utah, get me two. And I've always thought, I wonder whether <laughs> that's a little nod to that bit with the two pieces of pizza. I'd like to think that it was. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, good, it's, it's a good lesson, isn't it? The opening of Saturday Night Fever and how just doing something very simple, just getting the right music and then getting people to film it to the music and make sure that you're in time and getting the right performer in the and the costume and everything just can work really brilliantly. Well, yeah, I think it's that the the thing of like, I don't, you kind of like it's synonymous, right? That opening is kind of like if you if you feel like you're struck, like if if you kind of put on good music in your headphones and like kind of have confidence as you walk down the street, it's kind of the thing that will spring to most people's minds. Like this film is kind of it's part of our everyday lexicon and what we kind of talk about. It's like, if you, if you kind of do that dance where you, you, it's very hard to explain it's on a podcast, but like you do the, the finger point up and down. It's like, yeah, it's like known as like the Saturday night fever dance. It's like, but yeah, there's so many times you, I just think to myself like, Oh yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling confident. I've, I'm listening to my favorite music. I feel like John Travolta right now. <laughs> and I, I've, I've kind of, that's kind of been a touch point in my mind. And I imagine for a lot of people from an early age, and I imagine for people who have never even seen this film, I guess that's kind of like 
hardwire ingrained into like i don't know just just what like when they yeah when they kind of have that feeling of confidence they're like yeah i feel like john travolta at the beginning of saturday night <laughs> well that's why it's quite it's 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 quite a difficult film isn't it to kind of evaluate in some mm. sense because on the one hand one can have a kind of uh reaction to the narrative and the characters that are portrayed but on the other hand you're just so highly aware of its influence mm. in terms of popular culture in a way that's kind of extreme you know for, for what would have probably been quite a low budget film that by the sounds of it was sort of done in quite a rush it's just extraordinary how it how the ripples of it still sort of flow through everything inc including as you say just the way you might think of your like that the opening scene kind of preempts a time when people you know now it's so easy for us to you know on, on our phones listen to to music and kind of create our own soundtracks when mm -hmm. we're going going about our days in a way that it, it wasn't sort of quite quite so easy back then like in the 80s 80s 90s I would have had like a sort of chunky Kate Walkman <laughs> um, be tried to do it that way and we've come on in leaps and bounds since then but yeah it's 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 sort of it sort of anticipates that doesn't it that opening yeah, de definitely. And there's like, I don't know, you, you very quickly learn in this film because you do, you, you have that opening where it's quite bombastic and kind of brimming with confidence and you kind of think you're going to get this like fun film. But then like that interaction he has with his boss, uh, Dan Fusco, the, the, the paint shop owner, where like, he's kind of asking about the future and Tony delivers that line where he's like, oh, fuck the future. And it's his boss's like retort where it's like, it's kind of like the mission statement for the film. It's like, you can't fuck the future. The future fucks you. And it's like, yeah. once you hear that line, it's like, okay. I'm, 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 I'm like, I, I get the tone of this film completely. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting thing why I have I have tried to understand why it is that when when music is used in a film it wires your brain for something and so if something terrible happens in the film mm. it yeah it just it like kind of pulls the rug out from underneath you in a, in a way that it wouldn't do if you were watching a Scorsese film that kind of just felt from the get go like you knew what you were dealing with yeah. Um, well, and it, and it's very weird as well because obviously, like, I don't know why I have, especially for for myself, and I, I, I guess I guess other people would probably have this idea of what they think Saturday Night Fever is, but similar to Martin Scorsese film because it's like that's littered with like needle drops from like pop songs, whether it's like Mean Streets who kind of like Be My Baby and stuff like that. It's like yeah. they are they are all like great kind of get up and dance fun pop songs yeah yet, like you kind of i don't know you kind of when you think of saturday night fever you like if you haven't seen it or just like if you'd only ever seen that kind of uh disco cut you, you would have thought like oh yeah it's just fun fun like disco movie not like it kind of deals with some of the really existential questions really like serious topics that kind yeah, of like, and, like uh, um like the um the white the white suit for instance mm -hmm. like that image that we all have of him wearing the white suit doing the the pointy dance 
like I always forget whenever I revisit the film I always forget that at the, the point where he's wearing that and he's in the dance competition he's his face is completely beaten up and he's got you know he's he sort of doesn't doesn't look very good you know he looks knackered and he looks kind of depressed and and it's funny how in the marketing of the film there was something where they kind of took took that image and they the the the, the iconography of the film is so powerful that it actually, even if you've seen it a few times, each time you watch it again, you go, oh, oh, I really forgot that this was mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah. so dark. You know? Yeah, I'm actually looking at the DVD cover right now and it's it's got that, like, that image and they've obviously, like, done it on another day where he hasn't got, or, like, kind of done it pre or post him having the the, the makeup on for being battered and bruised and yeah he looks he looks absolutely great he almost looks aspirational of like yeah if i put on a white suit and a black shirt i'm gonna look like travolta and it's like uh, i'll probably look like him in the actual film like a bit a bit, <laughs> ba- a bit battered and beaten up um but, but this film in yeah uh relates to rocky in another a kind of much bigger way and the fact that at one point it was going to be directed by john g avildsen the director of Rocky and I I always think like what would that film have been like I guess I guess I, I guess it kind of would have been the film that a lot of people kind of think that Saturday Night Fever is on first impressions before seeing it because oh yeah t- t- and tell me tell me more about that well I know that he 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 stepped away because he he didn't like the the kind of stuff that um norman wexler had put in the kind of like the very gritty speech the dark places this film goes to like he was like i kind of want to make it a bit more like aspirational do you know i mean like 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 rocky is is kind of bleak but still it's what it's a pg it's it's the family can watch it it's not like like this film the the word cunt is said a lot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially if yeah. you think like if that was if that, that word was dropped in films like nowadays as much as in this, you, you still would probably go like, well, that's a lot. And I can only think of like in nineteen seventy seven, like that would have been like really, really like mind blowing to people. Like I know that um, the director, John Badham, uh, was slated to do a job for like a big studio and the day after this came out was fired it was like like they were like oh he's just gonna make us a vulgar film like yeah like like, like this is like uh, at the time i guess like the suits and stuff like that thought it was thought it was horrible basically whereas like the people the 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 joke the man on the street the kind of general public loved it it was the the fourth biggest film of 1977. Like, yeah. Crazy. And the, and the sound, I think maybe the soundtrack was released before the film as well, which I think really sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And what, that was like the biggest selling soundtrack ever until Thriller came out. It's like, I, 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 yeah, I imagine it's one of those things. Like if you go through, if you go for a car boot sale, if you go to a record fair, you're going to see like, upwards of 20 copies of the saturday night fever soundtrack because it's just like 
it's in everyone's house. Yes, yes, <laughs> completely, completely, and it's and it's um, and I think they the the Gibb brothers kind of dashed off quite a few of the songs in about a weekend, which is one of those things that is really depressing. <laughs> it's a ridiculously productive weekend, you bastards. Um, but yeah, and I think it was the uh, there were rumors i think that it was the first film that used the term blowjob mm-hmm. that got that got a good reaction i think yeah, That's <laughs> yeah. What, there's a, there's weird... a bit with him talking about his pussy finger and stuff i mean as you say even like now it's not like we've become completely used to these things you do go oh wow that's that's a lot yes. you know the yeah, yeah. yeah there's like uh well there's a weird link because <laughs> in carrie john travolta's character receives a blowjob but obviously they just never say it whereas like and he's in the film the first ever film to say it and doesn't actually get one he kind of like ends up going oh he he brushes off a net once again um which brings us to well before we get out to like the kind of night out scene um what what are your kind of thoughts on the the family dynamic scenes those kind of scenes we get around the dinner table well, I think that they're really important in terms of showing the difference in, in atmosphere mm-hmm. when Tony um, goes out when he comes home. And I think that that thing that you're describing where we're having a bit of difficulty sympathising with Tony in terms of some of his characteristics, those family scenes are really vital in kind of helping you understand the world that he's trying to get his head around. and to be in a family where if you get joy out of something, if you like going in and dancing or whatever it is, and to be in that family and feel as if they don't value or not even value it, just even kind of get at all why you would enjoy that thing, that, you know, could be potentially quite stifling. And you also see that there's a pattern of kind of physical and verbal abuse going on there his father says, you know, I've, to his mum, like, I I don't hit you, not in front of the kids, which implies that he does hit her mm-hmm. when they're not around and that they kind of know that. And then they also sort of, you know, you have the thing that's kind of play, played slightly for laughs in terms of him saying, you know, she hits my hair. And that is, is the kind of funny line stuff, but you also sort of see how there's a bit of a kind of cyclical thing going on at home with kind of people hitting each other and then there's also you also see why he might be attracted to Stephanie based on what's going on at home because the roles are so traditional like at one point Tony actually tries to help clear the table and his father says don't do that the girls do that Mm, you know trying to keep Tony very much in a particular role and another thing you know he has a row with his mum and he's then sort of filled with kind of shame about it and says, you know, I love you. And also at the very beginning of the film, you see him interacting with his sister and he's lovely to his sister. Mm-hmm. And they have actually a really sort of like nice little interaction. And that all of that kind of sort of contributes to this feeling of Tony being a bit of a different person when he goes out, the sort of the bravado and and some of the interactions with Annette and Stephanie. Like, you know, he's no he's not one note. He mm-hmm. he kind of he keeps he sort of keeps kind of changing kind of like a mirable isn't he tony's like he's sort of got all of these sort of different 
things that are sort of glinting out of him in different scenes. Yeah, and he's, he's definitely he's definitely not the worst of his friends. I think it's just that thing that he has that expectation because he's very much like the leader of the pack. So, like, I don't know, like, and obviously we're seeing it through the prism of Tony's life. Like, where it's like, I imagine, like, if you kind of, like, saw, like, what Joey gets up to when he's not on, like, when, oh, when, he, yeah. when he's not, like on camera like it's probably far worse like he's kind of like he's the one like pulling out speed at the club and stuff like that and like i don't know there are some yeah there, there's obviously like some almost for, unforgivable things that 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 tony does or kind of like he's very much like or doesn't do in some cases but then like his friends are are arguably far worse Oh, oh, oh! Absolutely. I mean, one t t Tony is is incredibly rude, but sometimes actually his actions, as you say, are are better than his. You know, like he's very he treats Annette really badly, but on the other hand, he isn't opting to use Annette for sex. Mm -hmm. And at the at the point where Annette sort of triggers him and sort of makes him jealous, and he does, and he does get into the car with Annette, he does ask her, you know, are are you fixed? Are you on? Are you on protection? You know, and and I'm not I'm not saying and you know what a what a round of applause we should give him for that or anything, but I just mean that unlike his friends, he's you know he doesn't he doesn't want to he doesn't want to he doesn't want to get her pregnant and he doesn't want her to be pregnant. And then at the end of, of the film, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure he, he does, he does make an attempt to kind of keep her from doing anything stupid with the rest of the guys. Yeah. As I say, none of these things are, they're just better. They're just better than his friends rather than anything in itself that should be regarded as being wonderful qualities. But as you say, yeah, he, he is, there is something about him that feels more thoughtful. Than oh, the, yeah, he's he's very much like a an edible apple in a batch of rotten ones. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, like there's there's not so many like brown marks. Do you know what I mean, you can kind of eat around it. Whereas like the other ones, it's like he, even like I think there's a certain line, like his, uh, the character, but yeah, Bobby. Like when when they go to the bridge and kind of trick a net that they've like jumped off. Like, well, the, like the, sh the camera lingers on Bobby and he just like says like you stupid bitch and it's just got this like I don't know it's like this thing of like oh fucking like give her a give her a break do you know what I mean like no I know I know and because Donna Pu uh, yeah Donna Pusco has has a net she's like she's she's like. The character's lovely, and she's kind of like she's very upfront. She's very bullshit. She kind of like she stands up to them at least, like especially especially at the start, like when when like kind of going over to the table, like when they're all yeah, when they're all at the club and stuff like that. And she's kind of like giving as good as she gets. But there's I don't know. There's there's this yeah. She says if you want a dream girl, then go to sleep and have a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she she's got this. She knows what she wants, but at the same time, you could tell like she's just a bit browbeaten by by being like. I guess this is kind of like a weekly thing. She's probably be like, we're just getting a snapshot into their lives, but like she's probably been ch like 
chasing Tony for for a while, and there's there's definitely that idea that there's some kind of backstory that we're 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 not privy to. We don't we don't really need, but there's definitely a history between those two. No, oh, completely, completely, and I think you know there's 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 so much of of Annette and the kind of feeling of vulnerability to her that I think. I, I can certainly relate to it. I'm sure, I'm sure we all can. It's that thing of being at a certain moment in life and you just have, have like massive crush on someone and they won't, you know, you, you can tell that it's sort of not coming back at you in the way that you want it to. And you get kind of, you know, you get kind of a bit fixated and, and that thing that she does where she, her, her way of kind of getting him to, to give in to her is by sort of triggering his jealousy by saying that she's going to get with one of his friends I think it's something that you know, yeah, ha- yeah, happens all the time, and it's very, it's very sort of relatable where someone just is feeling like they're really into someone and they're, and they're quite, and they're quite desperate about it. And but I think the reason why we we like her so much is because she's one of the like everyone in the film. So many people are kind of agonizing about themselves and what they want to do with their lives or how they're being perceived. Whereas Annette is, you know, you can tell that she's in love with someone else, you know, and that her, what's sort of driving her isn't just sort of like how she's seeing herself. It's it's her love for him, it's her love for Tony. And so there's something about her that feels like a very sort of human, human spirit in this quite cold environment. And I think that's what sort of makes us all sort of feel for her a lot, isn't it? Yeah, because to your point of something you said earlier about like when Tony asked her, is she on any form of contraception it's like i kind of re- re- read that as like it's a very selfish like he, he's asking selfishly do you know what i mean he's kind yeah, of going, yeah. he's kind of definitely thinking like oh annette's out to trap me do you know what i mean and like whereas yeah. like, he's not asking for like her do you know what i mean for her benefit or anything like that oh no 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 i, I know <laughs> yeah 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 um, yeah um, so let's talk about the 2001. Um, does that look like somewhere that you would very much like to go and have a dance? <laughs> well, I can see how if you were living that life, how that would be <laughs> somewhere where you would want to get. It's so it's so interesting. Like when it's another thing where when when you're kind of watching it back, you notice things like you it it sort of looks more and more tatty. The more yeah. the more you look at it, like I think that they actually sort of in the background, you can sort of see all of these kind of shiny things that are reflecting the light, and then it turns out I think they were all just um sort of like big sheets of uh, tin foil that they'd hung, yeah. <laughs> fairy lights in front of them to kind of you know reflect reflect the the light to kind of give it that kind of glitzy glitzy look, and it has that. I mean, it does it does remind me as a club of like there used to be a club in the in the nearest city that I grew up um, next to, and it have a it did have a similar similar vibe to that. Did did you ever go to a club that had that sort of feeling to it? Yeah, I've definitely been to places like that. I think I've been to like I've been like a flares or somewhere like that where they even have like that kind of. Which I guess I don't know. This this would have been the first place a lot of people would attend this like that light up floor, which like cost <laughs> was like the biggest expense on the budget. It cost like. 15 grand and they kind of had it so it could be like i guess it's commonplace like you can kind of 
get by lights for like a fiver off the internet to do it, but like would actually uh, perform to the music and like change and stuff like that. And um, there's a great <laughs> quote from like the disco owner because obviously like this is a real this was a real place. He saw like dailies of of what they were shooting, and obviously yeah. like like. It it must have looked mental with all that tin foil on the walls, like in the kind of the cold <laughs> light of day. Which I imagine yeah. like some of the a lot of this would have been filmed, but like you can kind of just imagine him being like this. I don't know. I, I just picture picture him as this kind of shyster type, and he's like, "You made my place look great." Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> and you imagine for him, he's just thinking like, "Business is going to go through the roof once this film go comes out." Like he's just. He's already counting the money. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> I mean, it has that. It does con- conjure up a certain kind of atmosphere, doesn't it? Because, like, they have the yeah such great scenes of, of you know T- Tony and his friends walking into it, and people kind of you know the the crowd sort of parting and, well, the, and all the background dancers as well. They they very much looked for people who were. Uh, actually looked like people who would frequent these places i know that like a lot of people who auditioned were like people working in like the chorus lines on broadway and stuff like that and um uh, john badham's kind of said like you look too much like dancers yes we we don't we don't want that we want like so the people who who wouldn't normally get the roles like who might i don't know like yeah, it might be a bit of a, of, more, of a more weighty guy or something like that who just happens to be able to cut cut a rug. Like they they would they they were they were getting roles or they kind of like scouted people in the Brooklyn area who were going to these clubs and could really really cut some shapes. And you kind of really get that with that first night out when they do that. It's almost like a line dance that they do. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great, right? It is great. It's definitely one of the best scenes in the film because, as you say, uh, it has this wonderful kind of unpolished quality to it. Mm. And it actually makes it, it didn't, revisiting the film this time after sort of like, you know, watching quite a few seasons of something like Strictly Come Dancing, I, I did I did sort of appreciate how there is something wonderful about people sort of intentionally creating art that does sort of reflect Ha- you know sort of real people attempting to do something you know that gives them kind of like this sort of feeling of escapism and how that's actually sometimes more moving than you putting on a tv program or a film where it's the people you know that are kind of that look amazing and they're dancing in the most amazing way that you could never possibly do and there's something you know about that scene of them all line dancing and they're all you know kind of they don't look over rehearsed they all look very much like people that you'd actually see in a club. And there's something about that moment. It's probably the most sort of uplifting, quietly uplifting moment in the film because it's all—it's like all of those people in that community doing something together that makes them feel good. And there's no aggression for a moment. Yeah. And the music's absolutely glorious, you know. It's weirdly euphoric, right? It's yeah. Con- and especially as the kind of club envelops with smoke, which was something that they like were like, oh, uh, that doesn't happen in clubs. And then like after this film came out, 
clubs actually started getting smoke machines so like yeah. kind of like one of the influence one of the many influences this this film uh, no, completely and um and when you were watching top of the pops when i was a child and stuff they had so, so much dry ice and things you kind of think yeah they probably wouldn't have introduced all of that into so much so much kind of light entertainment on tv if it were, weren't for saturday night fever as well well this scene i kind of have to talk about like one of possibly my my mvps for the film which is denny dylan's character the lady who comes up to tony uh, after he's like danced and comes over he's like tony could 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 i wipe your brow and like <laughs> just the, just the way she delivers she delivers it a lot she's like i love to watch you dance and she just kind yeah. of keeps saying it and like uh yeah and you kind of see that thing that like I don't, I don't know. Like he ha he's you, you half expect him to be like mean to her as well, and he's like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm actually, I, I just love dancing. If you want to dance, like, yeah, let, let's go for, let's go for a dance. And it is in moments like that that you kind of like go, oh yeah, like, like tone, especially because his friends are all like, what bad mouthing her and just being like real real arseholes like like when he when, yeah. he when he heads to the dance floor and yeah then we get like yeah. the the introduction of carol lynn gorney when he sees her like dancing on dancing on the dance floor because the dj again who is possibly one of my other mvps are just there's there's something about the the dj at that club who's just he's fantastic i love him <laughs> yeah he's so good um but yeah what what do you think of carol lynn gorney in this film i i like her um i like her performance and and understand the character a lot more now having revisited the film than i did when i was younger i think i used to all of my sympathy used to be with annette's character i think and I mean, even kind of in terms of their sort of physicality, there's something about um, this, there's something about kind of Annette, the way she's cast, like she looks very much like how an, uh, a woman you see in a, you know, she's got arms and she's got breasts and she's, you know, sort of quite short. And so, and she's a really, you know, she, she can dance, but she looks kind of like a, like a kind of, you know, a, a sort of, a woman that you see out but then there's something about Stephanie when she's introduced as a character on the dance floor she has that kind of look about her immediately where it's kind of like this is a you know she's she's got a sort of waif-like quality to her and she's sort of dancing in a in a in a way that's classy that might kind of intimidate you as a woman I, I sort of recognize that completely and there's something about it Stephanie's character now I have a lot more sympathy for her because there's something in her name dropping and going into the city and getting this job and then feeling the need to kind of you know insert all of these details about her life about how she's now kind of drinking tea with lemon and talking <laughs> down to Tony about you know sort of like rubbishes his thing where he says isn't, isn't Romeo and Juliet isn't that by Shakespeare and she's like no I'm talking about Zeffirelli the film director and things you know she's being uh she's being sort of quite pedantic but on the other hand there are these little tells where she says 
nobody has any idea how much I'm growing. And there's something really defensive about that line where you kind of think, oh, actually, she's going through stuff as well. You can mm. sort of see how she's sort of trying to build a life for herself. And there are people that she knows that kind of where she feels like they're trying to put her in a box and she's she's rebelling against that. And and you know, I I moved from I moved from North Wales and ended up uh, working in theatre in London. And I know that when I would have seen some of my old old friends, because when you're in theatre, you you meet famous people because mm -hmm. of just you know, because of actors being around and stuff. And you know, sometimes there are these things where I see Stephanie kind of name dropping. You kind of think, I bet I've done that. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like it's quite recognizable as kind of something that you try and do sometimes to try and, you know, like assure people that you're doing something interesting with your life or something, you know, and it's it's not a likable quality. But I think when you get older, you sort of recognize that it's quite universal, some of these things. And, and, and especially the ages they are, because what, Tony's 19, Stephanie, I does she divulge her? Is she like, I, I, she's got to be early 20s, right? So like, like it's not it's not very like i don't know it's not like she's she, she seems lost as well everyone seems lost in this film and she seems like somebody who very much know well she pinpoints exactly what tony's life is doesn't she she says to him like oh i bet you're living at home with your parents you've got some dead end job and the way you the way you kind of let off steam is just going out to the 2001 every weekend and tony has like an element of pride about that he's like yeah that is what i do and she's kind of gone past the rubicon on that and it's like well yeah that that's what i probably you that's what i used to do is like, i guess it's that thing of like when if you speak to like an 18 year old and like for them like there's there's nothing wrong with that idea of just like yeah i live for the weekend i go out do you know what i mean i dabble in drugs i dabble in like drinking i, I just cut yeah. loose on the weekend whereas like yeah you speak to somebody like of, of even 25 like maybe a bit like it depends uh if it's a man or a woman speak to a man of about 40 you'll probably get uh the idea of like him going yeah it's probably time to be serious about things and uh, there's there's a great like innocence and again like hurt to stephanie as a character that like she has managed to escape that world do you know what i mean she could have very much become like i don't know just just another another victim to like that that kind of lifestyle and like just had to deal with she could have ended up marrying a dickhead like one of tony's mates essentially yes she's kind of she she's got away from it and like she's got i don't know she's got there's something more for her out there um yeah completely and i think that uh she's even though she is quite brutal to him in that scene and she can be quite abrupt and rude i mean she certainly that that line that she delivers to bobby c where he says would you get an abortion or would you marry me and she says who would i have to marry and he says me and she said oh i get an abortion it's so incredibly it's brutal but on the other hand as you said like if if you're in that if 
if you're consorting with with people and you kind of know that in order to in order to kind of make a different life for yourself you're going to have to encounter certain things it's it's sort of understandable that you might be quite defensive mm-hmm. and you might sort of you know emulate kind of some of the aggression of what you've encountered around you and then you also sort of see the thing of her being quite rude to tony in that cafe scene that cafe scene is brilliant i think uh and then but then you see that older man that she's having that living arrangement with be mm-hmm. such an ass to her sort of you know telling her which books to read and saying don't say super no one says super anymore and things and you kind of think oh well, she's she obviously thinks she, that she needs a man like that in her life to tell her what, you know, what is right or what's wrong. So when she goes into work, she knows, um, she looks like she knows what she's doing. And I could completely relate to that as well. That thing where you kind of think I need someone to, to guide me, even if that person's sort of really talking down to me, you know? Um, so I think that, yeah, you can, you start to understand more and more about where she's coming from, don't you? Yeah. And it's that thing, she's kind of like in a rock and a hard place, isn't she? She's kind of like not so much like fully independent, do you know what I mean? Fully independent enough to be able to just go out fully on her own. She's kind of had to get into this weird living situation. She's kind of like, I guess like we're, it's that thing that we all have to make compromises and stuff like that. And it's like, you see how hurt she is, like, when Tony helps her move and he's he he gets like quite upset with her he's kind of like he's very jealous about about her living with this guy and kind of like gets I don't know well he he's just jealous all the time right like it's it's either with the kind of the guy she's seeing or she's dancing with Pete and to quote Tony the cunt hound like yeah he's kind of always like flying off the handle and I don't that like the to talk about like the middle section of this film. It kind of like it builds it builds up with you kind of get these scenes of him and Stephanie practicing for like the big dance. A lot a lot of Annette kind of like just being stood up, and then um, yeah, we get the we get that first scene on the on the on the bridge. And I know that they they actually didn't tell Donna Pusco that like there was a platform underneath so when you see her face when she thinks that they've like fallen that's her actual like reaction to oh it. that's that's awful i hate if that's true that's awful mm-hmm. i disapprove <laughs> yeah because yeah. i find it i just but the both the bridge scenes i oh i think i think it might be i think the fine you know the final one in particular obviously i think it might just be the most disturbing thing in any I think there's something about the way it sort of emotionally gets you and then yeah. it's just so tragic that I just find it so devastating and there's something about the fact that they were filming they were really filming up there and it does sound as if the whole process was extremely dangerous yeah it's kind of like the the film you could tell it's like and obviously this film couldn't have been made like any earlier really than it was like because it's all on locations it's obviously like the technology before then it would have been a lot of like having to be on sets and stuff like that because the cameras were just so chunky and it, yeah it was only like the year before with rocky that like steady cams like so they could actually just like walk around with the camera and it not be shaking all over the place or 
have to have like big dollies and stuff like that uh, to be yeah. able to do stuff that like I don't, I don't know it's kind of got this weird like low budget gorilla thing to it it's got the kind of glitter glitter disco sheen to it but yeah, it's um so let's i don't this film's littered weirdly with these i've kind of got a list of like the b plots because you kind of got this thing of like tony wanting to kind of get out of brooklyn but then you kind of got like the whole thing with his brother kind of giving up the the cloth is is that the yeah kind of yeah turning his back on religion you've got like the friend hospitalized for getting beaten up you've obviously got bobby c who's got a girl pregnant and kind of he's just asking everyone about it and kind of like there's that moment with him and Tony, isn't there, when he's walking down the street and he he just keeps asking him like, are "You are you gonna like call me? Are you gonna call me back? Like, please call me back. Like, call me tonight. Like, yeah, to talk about it." And Bobby's also asking like Tony's brother, who I don't, I don't know what it is. Tony's brother weirdly reminds me of uh, the character of Damien Carris from The Exorcist. There's something about oh, those, those yeah. actors look very similar, and I'm not sure if it's just people of kind of like Mediterranean descent, like, uh, <laughs> like yes, um, yeah, in in uh, what is it like in priest outfits? That's that's not the actual term for it, but that's what I'm going to call them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But there's um something about that scene where where you have um. Bobby C continually trying to ask Tony's brother the question in the club while Tony's sort of doing his thing. That I think kind of when you re this, that whole character of Bobby C, when you rewatch the film, it sort of makes you realize how you as a viewer kind of originally sort of do what his friends do, which is that when you watch it the first time, you're kind of so fixated on John Travolta's performance and his star quality and his charisma that when Bobby falls off the bridge at the end, it kind of takes, I mean, you know, obviously it takes you by surprise, but you sort of realise that you kind of were slightly distracted from what he was going through. Mm-hmm. And then when you watch it again, it you kind of notice so many more things about his character like there's something about you sort of it starts to sort of like cast a shadow over the whole film like you you notice his sort of anxious questions much more and and there's a bit where they're in a in the car where tony says oh, you know the tape the, the the music that you're playing's rubbish you need to get new tapes and you, you hear bobby sort of saying yeah i'll get new tapes i'll get new tapes and there's another scene where he sort of just someone has kicked his car and then he ends up sort of apologizing profusely to them and you sort of start to notice his sort of like building anxiety throughout the film much mm-hmm. more when you rewatch it and it's kind of and then yeah and there's that scene where as you say he's sort of saying to him will you call me will you call me and then they have that amazing little shot where you see him walk around the corner and you notice that he's on really high heels <laughs> Um, yep. kind of, you know sort of like which feels like him sort of just trying to sort of build up his build up his manhood or whatever it is you know and um yeah as you say like it's not it runs under two hours doesn't it but it's yeah. it's kind of packed with all of these different with everyone kind of going through different existential crisis crises in a way isn't it yeah and it's kind of like they've like but like, i don't know like 
it's like, let's borrow from this film a bit. Like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it almost has this like warriors style section where it's like those guys like uh, going to like going to beat. Uh, they call like the Barracudas or something like that. Like the yeah, the, the, like the the gang who had roughed up one of their one of their guys, and then like it just even that it kind of undercuts them to just show like what fucking idiots they are in the the fact that like they 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 essentially just beat up the wrong people and kind of like i don't know really really speaks to just that like yeah them i don't know and there's there's a thing with this film and i guess like especially looking at it through like modern eyes like this film is littered with kind of uh, homophobic slurs uh, racist slurs and stuff like that which can be like difficult to to watch and again to bring it back to like summer of sam a film that was made what like 20 years later yeah like would have like there's that whole thing that like that has a very similar gang with john laguisiamo and his kind of gang of thing it's like like unfortunately i i think that is like there would have been like especially like italian americans who would have like that would have been like the attitude of the time this very much does feel like as much as now it might seem a bit like i don't know like uneasy on the ear oh yeah of course i think it's in it is intended but that's the thing the film never feels to me as if it's asking you to i mean yeah exactly in the dance contest because they have the thing of them beating up the wrong people and then that goes into the dance contest where sort of you know tony has has the sort of realization that if you're kind of living in a community that has discrimination at its core then no one can evaluate themselves mm-hmm. in a way that you know kind of like ma- matches up to to anything that's that feels real and it's a it's quite the film does feel as if it sort of reaches the climax of, ma- of making the point that that yeah, discrimination of that kind and abuse of that kind, you know, is isn't something that can make anyone can make anyone happy and isn't a good thing for people to be around. So like obviously like that is something I can I can kind of like stomach with this film. It's very much a product of its time and it's just sh- like yeah, again, it's not it's not getting you to sympathise with these characters. I guess like the point it kind of like goes beyond um, the point of no return for me is like how women are treated in this in this film, especially like in that kind of post dance sequence when we get um, when we get Tony and Stephanie in the car. Like that's yeah. It like even now, like and I'm not sure. Like I, I imagine at the time it would have been the same as well. It's, I don't know. It feels it feels very poorly handled. Like especially how this film ends as well like i don't no it doesn't it, there's a there's a thing with this film which is that i think john baden said that he made a decision to have every scene from tony's perspective mm-hmm. uh and you can you can un- understand that that decision but then it does make it it harder if you're ever trying to kind of um explain the 
the the the effect you know the very real effects that something like sexual assault can have on someone if if everything is done from his perspective and that kind of thing is going on then there is a danger that people might kind of underplay Mm -hmm. you know the the reality of, of of how someone might feel in the aftermath of that kind of thing yeah so that is you know and I mean, it's weird in the 70s because then he went on to do Greece. I don't know what you think but he went on to do Greece just sort of like a few months after this and there's a kind of like I mean obviously it's you know it's it's done in a more lightweight version but there's a really similar sort of bit in Greece when he's at the drive-in with Sandy where he tries to force himself on her and she kind of storms out of the car and it's kind of like a strange echo of that yeah. scene in Greece, it's sort of played even more likely in the sense of like, oh, well, that doesn't make him in any way a bad guy. In fact, then he kind of sings about being stranded at the drive-in, you know. Yeah. I always kind of think like it's not a – these things aren't meant to be a normal part of courting, you know. It's not like – and it's not some, – and if it happen, if, if something like this happens to a person, it's, it's not something that you should be sort of saying is easy to, to come back from, you know. Well, so, I think it's I, like I completely agree that is a really difficult point. So. It's a very like one-two punch of like because it's like so we've just been it's just been established that yeah like he he is essentially trying to rape Stephanie and then like it's how he then like it, if if I don't know if the film had gone somewhere else to where it goes next when it's obviously like we see throughout the the competition which they lose. Joey has been plying a net with like speed throughout the night yeah. or or some type of drug and then like yeah they they kind of lure her to their beat up car and you get that confrontation between like Tony and and, and the gang and she she again she she's she's essentially raped in the back of the car and yeah Tony just sits there and it's just like I don't know, like, I don't know if I can, like, I, I buy the ending once it, like... No, I think that that, that this, I think that the way they filmed that scene, I think that everyone was feeling so uncomfortable about it and they had different discussions as to how he was mm-hmm. meant to be handling it. But there's something about the moment where she sort of, you know, starts to cry and he's still not interacting with his friends about what's going on that it does it does sort of push you into into another place where you think it's going to be really hard to to finish this film on Tony's perspective without us being kind of distracted about kind of the aftermath of that yeah happened to net you know that's what's hard about making everything from his perspective but it's because you see what's happening to I mean the thing about the way they shoot it is that they do shoot it from her perspective, you can see, you can see her emotional reaction to what's happening. So, I appreciate it on that level in the sense that you're not you're left in no doubt about kind of you know the trauma that this is going to cause yeah. her. But then the aftermath is Tony, isn't it? Sort of you know but, going, yeah. yeah, having a good good old think kind of. Thing. <laughs> and you yeah, think I kind of want to know that Annette's okay at this point, you know. Yeah, it's it's him kind of like just looking lost on the subway, whilst like, what's the song that's playing? Is it like it's not how deep? How is deep your is love? your love? Yeah, how deep is your love? Yeah. Kind of like, 
like just kind of like sitting in train yeah sitting in subway carriages just kind of looking long into the distance and walking down the platform and stuff like that and then he goes to stephanie's apartment in the morning and kind of like tries and she even addresses the fact of like that like she says something to the effect of like oh i don't, I don't tend to let like uh sexual predators into or like known rapists into my apartment and it's like so this film is like is established that that is that is what he essentially did like or at yeah. least attempted to do but then like the the kind of ending is like him just kind of going like oh maybe may, maybe like may, uh, i don't know it kind of has that thing where it, it tries to be like he's learned a lesson but it's like what lesson has he learned it's like he's learned he he wants to move to manhattan and it's kind of like it's like i don't i don't think i've I side with you here like tony of kind of like yeah it's like you say like you kind of want that closure so what happened with, with annette or, or like okay. do you know what I mean or it's like i i I don't know. It's 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 kind of it's it's a difficult pill to swallow. Even that kind of like interaction of like him and him and Stephanie kind of making up and vowing to become friends. It's like the 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 guy has already proved that like he kind of befriend like tried to bef- yeah like get into her orbit under the pretense of like let's be dance partners, but then like kind of at any given opportunity he's like try trying the moves and like do you know what I mean he's just full of rage when like she won't let him walk her home and stuff like that and it's like I, I, yeah I, I just I just find I just find that last 10 minutes kind of I don't know it's it's, it's just a bit too bleak yes yes completely I mean I think that the thing that's in- interesting about this film is that when when you know that when you know that most that most instances of of sexual assault happen between people that already know each other, mm-hmm. you sort of do you sort of think well I suppose a film like this is sort of is putting you up against that where you're where you're presented with characters that you get to know, and then you then you're let in on knowing what you know has gone on in these kind of like dark corners of their life and then you have to just sit with that Mm. and I think that that is a really really uncomfortable feeling but on there is an aspect to it where I kind of think it's it's useful to reflect on some of those things sometimes Mm. that makes sense yeah 100% and it's I I guess it is yeah it's not the fact that I, I meant to be saying it's a bit too bleak it's it's not even the fact it's it's just the way that obviously the the ending is presented that we're supposed to, it's almost like got a kind of like haze to it that we're just supposed to be like ah oh, and that and do you know what I mean like a postscript would come up and then be like yes and, and Stephanie don't you think she kind of looks like a the last shot looks a little bit kind of like you um a sort of biblical illustration of a stained glass window or something yeah. they put her 
kind of dressing gown she kind of looks like a madonna or an angel or something doesn't she and sort of bowing down over him kind of you know taking care of him and, and you think you know we've seen him several times in this film react incredibly sort of jealously to to quite minimal things and i don't know if if these two people it's a lovely idea that he could just suddenly turn into someone that's able to just be friends with someone that he's attracted to but from what I've seen in this film, I don't know if he's going to be able to to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just I, I guess it's a very it's a very difficult one, and I, I I don't think I don't think it is all the aspect of like just looking at it from like a a, a woke twenty twenty one perspective or anything like that. Like I would imagine like the things it presents and the kind of way it's presented would have would have been slightly problematic at the time i, I, yeah, I can imagine like like that there, there's there's other films of that time that kind of like i don't know at least address stuff in a better way and, and i guess there is like there is a very I don't, there's a very poor handling there's again i keep making a weird comparison to rocky but like there's that kind of scene between Rocky and Adrian that like is 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 a bit bizarre when they first like kiss and it's kind of like like I don't know the I, I and, and my my view on that is I just think it's like it's a poorly handled scene as opposed to being actually problematic whereas this yeah. film I, I definitely feel like that stuff is prob is problematic like it's handled in a problematic way yeah it, it, and it, their choices that have been made whether it's in the script or choices whether it's shots and stuff that they've chose to linger on or or or, or just not include at all whereas yeah i just i i, I can't get past it i just can't like because it very much feels I, I kind of beating this drum death but feels like we're supposed to root for tony at the end and i'm no like, no i i and i think actually um oddly enough his john travolta's charm mm. is i is 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 also sort of contributing to that feeling of discomfort that you get at the end of the film because you you recognize in yourself that you have in some ways found him quite a compelling protagonist and that you you know that you have that there's a part of you that has kind of let him in mm. and so there's something about watching someone that you feel that you feel by the end of the film kind of as if you sort of have got to know and has kind of charmed you and then seeing them behave so coldly or so brutally that re that I think maybe leaves you feeling kind of it probably leaves it that's the thing it probably echoes the whole theme of the film where you start to have a bit of an existential crisis because you kind of think I've I've been I'm on this journey with this hero and look at how terrible terribly he, he behaves and yet you know I watched him dance to you should be dancing and I thought it was like one of the greatest things I've ever seen you know so you're, you're kind of yeah definitely you have to with that contradiction in yourself which is a really uncomfortable feeling yeah yeah it's a film that definitely leaves you kind of asking yourself questions about about well just bigger things just like kind of and it 
Yeah, and it is that thing that like Travolta kind of does have that like charisma and charm, and uh, to to kind of link it back to something I said at, like at the beginning, like if if it were like somebody I don't know, not somebody who's like kind of known out and out for playing these darker roles, and at this point as well, like Travolta plays like a bit of a dick in. Um, cat. Well, he plays an, a, a dick in Carrie as well. But like, I know that in uh, the in, in America at the time, he was what on like a hit sitcom kind of very. Is it like Welcome Back, Carter, or something like that? And he was oh, like, yeah. he was like, I guess this would have been like the the thing that would have been comparable. It's like Bruce Willis in Die Hard at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's kind of this yeah. guy who's who's known for this kind of lovable character on tv and i know yeah and and then he's playing like this slight well yeah nearly well no this unredeemable character i kind of skirted around that but it's like uh yeah if not if not unredeemable at least very close to being so character but i know that that is something that travolta like wanted to do as an actor yeah. and what kind of like drew him to the part and was the reason that John G. Avildsen left the project because Travolta kind of was quite a big name at the time, like, or at least had a bit of cachet that he was like, well, I'm, I'm not doing it unless we kind of keep the rough edges on, on the film. I just, I just think like, not that the rough edges should have been sanded off this film. I just think that like, there needed to be some counterpoints to those rough edges. Yes, yes, I, I totally get what you mean. I mean, yeah. I think that his decision might have, um, in, in like more generally in terms of the tone of the film, considering that Greece came off the back of it, it probably mm -hmm. was the two of them. It's funny, I think maybe that's what happened as well, was that people lumped in Saturday Night Fever with Greece, and so when people see the two of them they're kind of expecting Saturday Night Fever to be a kind of companion piece to Grease when it's just such a completely different film yeah. and then he became so I, th I mean I think that because all of the songs kind of filled up the charts in the following year and then Grease came out I think that John Travolta sort of suffered this this um overexposure Mm -hmm. certainly over here like I can remember watching I, I watched the old um, Top of the Pops reruns on BBC4 on a Friday night and there's quite a famous performance from the Boomtown Rats where Bob Geldof opens his performance by ripping up a picture of um, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John you know and while theatrically yeah as a kind of way <laughs> make way for the new kids we've had enough of them you know and you think like the fact that that was such a big moment on top of the pops indicates how how much of a success story he'd become so quickly just in the space of a couple of years you know yeah and, um, but i think that if he hadn't have done this film you, you wouldn't because didn't you were saying that he would only do this film because of some of the darker aspects yeah. of it but then i think that he had to be persuaded didn't he to do pulp fiction because he thought that that was too Dark. yeah but obviously that, yeah. there's like a big like it's a, um there's a big gap isn't there so like during the he had kind of started to become a bit more of like a a, a, fa a family film man like pulp fiction would have been post 
look who's talking look who's talking now perhaps yeah trying, yeah trying to think of the timeline of this i haven't got Toronto's imdb up at the moment but like yeah it's it's a kind of weird one and and there's a very like it's very sad as well like in travolta's personal life like his personal life at the moment like obviously he he'd just lost his girl and like he'd lost his girlfriend whilst they yeah were, i think it happened during the film yeah yeah, so like, I don't like, I, I, I can only imagine what that would have been like. I'm not even sure if I can. Like, the, like, it would have no, it's, been it's horrible. Like, completely, and it, and it, once you know that, you sort of, it sort of feeds into some, mm-hmm. some of the things that are coming across in the film. Like, I think I read that, um, Karen Lynn Gourney said that that kiss that she gives him on the cheek when they're looking at the bridge in that scene was actually improvised from her because he was looking really tearful yeah and it was just in the aftermath of that and that she could see that he was just suffering incredibly so she leant over and and gave him a kiss you know and what and once you sort of understand that and understand sort of what he's going through through the the course of the film you do think it probably does all of that sadness that you see across his face on a lot of the scenes and that sort of raw vulnerability probably is coming from quite a real place. Well, yeah, people, people said at the time, like they can't, they, they can imagine what he was going through. Cause he would like finish a day's shooting and then would basically like be up all night crying. He was just so upset, like, but then managed to just like pull it together to film these, to, to film scenes and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow do you know what I, mean? I know it's incredible isn't it like i i read um an account i think that andy warhol had written in one of his diaries or something about how he'd been on a on a plane the same plane as john travolta and you just kept noticing that john travolta sort of kept going into the loo and coming back and looking sort of you know with his eyes sort of filled with tears and he didn't know what was going on with him and then it was only afterwards that he read that his partner had died you know so obviously he was he was coming back from from being with her and and yeah it's just it's like the professionalism that Mm -hmm. you know people people have to kind of exert on in in these kind of situations is is extraordinary really and there's something about the the kind of um the way in which he he throws himself into this role you know and kind of the way he executes it with that all kind of going on in the background is yeah it's a really remarkable thing yeah well is there anything in the film that we've missed? Is there any of your favourite scenes that we haven't, or points that we haven't talked about? Um, I think I think we've we've pretty much we've gone over a lot of it, haven't we? I mean, it's it's just so it's so filled with with incredible things, and um, oh yeah, and David David Shire, who we're who we're talking yeah, about, yeah, his um. That that was that was something he does a uh, piece of music in it called Manhattan Skyline, and you hear it in one of the one of the rehearsal scenes, and that song was originally going to be a song called Lowdown by Boz Skaggs, and then mm-hmm. at the last minute it got he didn't want to give permission to them to use it, so they used Manhattan Skyline instead, and then that got used on as the opening music to 
the American football games and apparently David Shah sort of really made a, <laughs> a lot of money as a result of that so, so but I do think it's a really Manhattan Skyline is a really great I mean it's the soundtrack in general is just extraordinary and I do think that that's like a, a lovely a lovely part of it it really reminds me of the Charlie's Angels theme mm-hmm. tune it's got that real kind of 70s sort of New York you can imagine kind of people sort of looking out at the the New York sunshine and grabbing a coffee and going out you know it's got that kind of that kind of sort of exhilarating feeling to it and, um, yeah yeah so so he did a good job <laughs> <laughs> amazing so yeah we've obviously just mentioned David Shire there so let's talk about some Coppola connections could you find any weird and wonderful connections between this film and the Coppola family I could so Tony's mother is played by Julie Bavasso and she's aunt in Moonstruck and obviously Moonstruck has Nicolas Cage at the um, centre which you would know a lot about <laughs> amazing <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you one of mine before uh, before you give another one uh, obviously this film uh, is starring John Travolta, who also starred in Face Off with Nicolas Cage. That's a nice, it's a nice easy one. Uh, have yes. you got any more, Catherine? I've got some more tenuous ones. I don't know whether you want to. Let's go tenuous. Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, John Travolta made Michael, which was written and directed by Nora Ephron. And she's the real life partner of Carl Bernstein, which the film All the President's Men was made about. And that was scored by David Shire. Amazing. Uh, here's a here, here's another here's a tenuous one. Uh, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, Staying Alive, was directed by Sylvester Stallone, who starred alongside David Shire's wife at the time, Talia Shire. Oh, that's a very good one. Uh, <laughs> I've got another one as well. This is also tenuous. <laughs> Barry Miller, who plays Bobby C, he made then went and made fame with Alan Parker, who worked with Madonna on Evita, who made Dick Tracy with Al Pacino, who was in The Godfather. Amazing. Well, Alan Parker also directed Birdie with uh, Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine in it. Oh, there you go. That's a better one, isn't it? (laughs) Barry Barry Miller is also in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Peggy Sue Got Married alongside uh, Nicolas Cage. I think he's very good. <laughs> yeah, ba- ba- Barry Miller. I, I know that a lot of the other um, a- actors of his gang were kind of first timers, and uh, a couple of them haven't really done much else. I know one of them is more of like a, a voice actor now, but um, yeah, ba- ba- Barry Miller's kind of like, I think he was an actor before and has gone on to do some great stuff. Well, Let's get on to my very arbitrary and kind of, uh, yeah, uh, pointless scoring system, but all fun all to, uh, nonetheless, is what would be your perfect wine pairing for this film? So I'm going to go with a cocktail, Lovely. which is uh, a seven and seven, which is what Tony Monero orders when he first enters the club. And that's a mixture of whiskey and seven up. Great, great. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that that I I think my mine is uh, a, a bit more uh, that 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 that's perfect. That is the trick that is in this 
film. Mine, however, speaks more to how this film slightly makes you feel. And it's like, like, oh, yeah, okay. go, go, go with me on this. This film yeah. would be uh, communion wine spiked with speed in that it kind of, there's an impression of this film that is very much wholesome for the family, for everyone to enjoy. But then there is very much a spiky undertow. And obviously, Tony's gang do a lot of speed. That's wonderful. <laughs> An incredible description. Uh, <laughs> amazing. So how much are you paying for this 7 and 7? Uh is 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 this is this low rent or is this a, a, a high price drink? Are you going for a, um, an expensive whiskey in this? Yeah, I pay. I I I I think the last the last time I went to a cocktail bar, I think it was before you know the the year that we've just had, <laughs> and I their most expensive. I think mean, that was in the northern quarter. I think it was. Cane grain and their most expensive cocktails, I think, were about a tenner. So I'd go for that, but I might try and turn up at happy hour. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. Uh, um, amazing. And would you recommend people watch Saturday Night Fever if they haven't already? I would absolutely recommend it, but you need to make sure that you're in the right frame of mind mm -hmm. if there is such a thing. But um, yeah, don't watch it on a date. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird one. You wouldn't think it, but it very much can be filed under the same category as a film uh, like Requiem for a Dream, where it's like it's, it's it's got a lot going for it, but you don't really want to watch it all the time. No, no, <laughs> I, I kind of think of it. I kind of think of it as a like a tragic opera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, it's that kind of. You can, you know, you understand that it's an incredibly sort of significant piece of art, but it's unbelievably intense, and you can't, you know, you can't stick it on every single day. It, it's odd actually because I think that the the kind of exhilarating parts of it have influenced some of some really feel good films that I watch a lot. Like I think it influenced Swingers quite a lot. Do you know the film Swingers? You yeah. Know, yeah yeah, like there's a, you know, there's there's lots of little bits in Swingers where I think, oh, that's just a, you know, sort of like nod to something. I feel like there's a bit where they're in the diner and Vince Vaughn is sort of jumping on the seats and just almost like a recreation of the bit in the diner in Saturday Night Fever. And also just things like um, the commitments or Strictly Ballroom or whatever, you know, loads of kind of quite sort of generally feel-good films. They might have gritty aspects, but they sort of like leave you on quite a high, I think, of being quite influenced by this. So it's quite a strange one in that way, isn't it? It's so it's so dark, but but people have taken things out of it that to make films that people might watch every yeah. day to make themselves feel good. You know? Well it's very much got an aspect of being like a, an early like hangout movie. Like do you know what I mean? And the thing of like yeah. it's not so much like like Jimmy, he's got a very loose plot of like them entering the competition, but then even that kind of starts to like drift off into the background as more and more things get um, like brought into it. And yes, like, you, yeah, you can even see like a kind of lineage between Saturday Night Fever and something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, or even like Dazed and Confused, where it's this kind of like. I mean, people just going about and kind of 
dropping in on these different aspects of people. But obviously this film is just, yeah, it was made in the 70s. So it kind of has to have like a, a bleakness to it that the 70s seems to just exude all the time. Do you know what I mean? To bring it back to Rocky once more. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a kind of like uplifting underdog story where the underdog loses at the end of yeah. the film, Jane. Uh, so, um, this... well, I can completely see why Travolta wanted him for, like, really persuaded him hard to do Pulp Fiction because there are bits in Pulp Fiction where, you, I mean, as well as the dancing scene, which is obviously, yes. but but as you say, that that thing of kind of dropping in on different people who are going through sort of different things, all of which are kind of equally grim. There are aspects of that in Pulp Fiction, aren't there, as well? Yeah, yeah. So you can really see why he was like, you, you've got to play this role. I've got <laughs> these vitals. So let's move on to, again, a question that is probably close to unanswerable, but uh, which couple of family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the filmography of every other family member. Well, I know that you're going to be you're going to be very cross about this, but I'm going to keep David Shire because I want to keep Saturday Night Fever. No, I'm not cross at all. <laughs> I like I, 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 I come on with uh, no judgment. I, I know a lot of people <laughs> expect me to just want them to say Nicolas Cage all the time. I know. I, I'm not. I'm not like. Is, yeah. I'm not like a devotee of like. I'm. I, I'm more of like a kind of social scientist looking at a fascinating actor as opposed to. Uh, a card-carrying, flag-waving, Nicolas Cage-like, can-do-no-wrong fan. Yeah, yes. No, I, I understand the distinction. And it's just also this film, because um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of a pop music fanatic, mm -hmm. and if you take away Saturday Night Fever, you take away sort of one of the, the sound... If you, if you get rid of the soundtrack, you, you take away a, a really kind of vital cog in the pop music canon mm. and i need it to be there i need it to remain forever <laughs> so yeah i, I guess yeah. you kind of really just get rid of how like needle drops are used in films as well and kind yeah of, completely this would have probably been the first instance of the soundtrack being just as big or even bigger than the film itself like with the there's kind of and, and now that's kind of commonplace right like a lot of the time yes. like, so you look at you look at something like guardians of the galaxy i don't think you've got a soundtrack like that if you don't have um saturday night fever to kind of pave the way for for doing that no i think i think that's i think that's really right perfect so are the coppolas the greatest film family of all time katrin well, because we're talking about Saturday Night Fever, mm -hmm. I'm going to make a case for the Gibb brothers being the greatest film family of all time. I, okay, okay, that is a that 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 that's perfectly fine. Uh, I do believe that you're you're wrong, but from hearing your uh, he, he, hearing, obviously being a uh, well, the thing is, <laughs> we were talking about, we were talking about Greece and the the title track from Greece, which is the best song in Greece, I think, is also a Gib Brothers track. Yeah. And then they like wrote things like "How Do You Mend a Broken Heart," which is in loads of different films, um, like 
possibly like really famously right in the middle of Notting Hill where they play the Al Green version of it in its entirety and yeah and it their their music has touched so many different artists and different films and it's just sort of like sprawling all over the place and also they didn't get nominated for an Academy Award for the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack which I'm I continue to be angry about so on that on that basis I would also like to nominate them <laughs> that's, that, that's perfect that's great that's uh you're the you're the first person so far who who hasn't who hasn't agreed that, that the Coppolas are I, I, I guess it's kind of almost slightly a redundant question because it's like how many other families have like so many legs in the yeah it's very <laughs> difficult <laughs> it's very difficult to contend with them even if you're like going into Jamie Lee Curtis's family or anything it's still quite hard to you know to compete with the Coppolas I think really isn't it yeah, yeah they, they've kind of they've very much like gone we got something for everyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. we, we've we've got Wes Anderson movies, and we've got straight to DVD Nick Cage movies, all in the same family. So it's like, take a pick, like, take a pick what you want. No, no, completely, completely. No, they they are incredible. They are incredible. Well, before I let you go, Catherine, I must ask you, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Okay, this is what I think he says. Mm -hmm. He says, they're about to play the Jesus and Mary chain, even though I asked for Shawadi Wadi. In the <laughs> edit, when they ask you which you prefer, say Shawadi Wadi. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, okay. I'm pretty convinced of that. So. <laughs> That's possibly one, like, yeah. I, I, I love asking this question. Because people just uh, give give such great and fun answers. Uh, <laughs> I can't uh, wait to find out what the other people have said. Yeah, I, yeah, like the I guess I guess the kind of I don't know what the end goal is. I guess the end goal is to uh, try and ask Sophia Coppola herself what yes. what do they say, or, or is it a case of like, well, we didn't we just didn't have an ending. We just thought we'd leave it ambiguous and then. We'll have people guessing for for years and years to come. Well, it's a good wheeze, isn't it? <laughs> um, people have tried to lip read him, haven't they? I think. Yeah, yeah. I'd like. I, I, I'd imagine so. I guess there's there's definitely. The, I know there's kind of a famous quote. I think it was um, Mark Commode said that like he says to her like, "Come with me because I've just signed the deal to do Garfield and I'm going to be minted." <laughs> <laughs> so perfect well um Catherine, thank you so much for for yeah for slipping on your dancing shoes and coming and joining some of the dots and making some couple of connections with me um if people want to uh yeah follow you on social media or anything like that or if, do you have anything to plug on the podcast uh do so now um yeah i'm Catherine low at kitty costanza on twitter and on instagram and I'm about to record a episode of Betamax with um, Betamax Club with Rich Rich, Rich uh, with Rich Nelson, which you had um, on the other day, I think, didn't you? Talking about the conversation. Yeah. So Rich came on for the first episode of this journey, shaking the branches of the Coppola family tree. So yeah, if you haven't and, listened, yeah, 
No, I was just gonna say go back and listen to that, guys. <laughs> and we're about to we're about to record an episode on Purple Rain, which I think is a film that's incredibly influenced by Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. So if people have enjoyed this episode, um, then they might enjoy listening to that too. Perfect. Well, yeah. Thank you so much again for coming and chatting with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Petros. Thank you very much, guys, for hitting the discotheque with myself and Katrin. If you feel like we missed anything or we got anything wrong, please don't hesitate to get in touch, which you can do on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at CagedInPod. Or you can reach us via email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com. Just a heads up that the Prince Charles Cinema have tickets on sale for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now on a beautiful 35mm print in its original theatrical cut. Obviously, I'm not telling you to rush out and go see it if you don't feel comfortable with everything that's been going on. I totally understand. You just want to sit at home and watch a beautiful Blu-ray of it. But if you want to, the option is very much there as for next week's episode i'll be joined by the lovely jeanette bear from the fantastic sudden double deep podcast to talk about our first double coppola connection film co-written by roman coppola with an appearance from the one and only jason schwartzman is of course wes anderson's 2012 moonrise kingdom if you haven't already make sure you check out breadcrumbscollective.com where you can check out a whole bunch of other great podcasts all under the breadcrumbs collective banner and if you enjoyed this podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review on acast apple podcast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now i've been petrus patsilovis your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree so remember to keep it coppola and i'll catch you next time This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.